Chapter 15 of Souls for Sale. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information, or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Souls for Sale by Rupert Hughes. Chapter 15. As Mem went slowly out with the straggling crowd, she was overwhelmed with a loneliness for life, for love, for someone to fight for her and uphold her in the deep waters, and then for a taste of the spiced wines of romance. She cried aloud in the silence of her room for Elwood Farnaby to come back and help her, to come back and claim his right to the splendor of existence. Grief sprang at her like a puma leaping down from a tree and tore her with claws of anguish, set fangs into her heart and shook it. In her room, as she took off her clothes with listless hands, she remembered her parents. She had not written to them for two days, and she had not carried Mr. Woodville forward. She sat down and began a letter. Everything she could think of to write involved some difficulty. She described her arrival at Tucson, her surprise at being met by Mr. and Mrs. Galbraith. She squandered reckless praise of her father for his ever-watchful protection and the comfort of feeling that he and his prayers were always on guard. She praised the Galbraiths for their thoughtful attention. Then she flung the pen down in disgust at the hypocrisy of her words and in revolt at the deep damnation of her whole plan. But rebel as she would, she must go on. She could not turn back now. One thing was certain. She must free herself from the Galbraiths. She must get out of Tucson. She must become Mrs. Woodville at once. Life would not wait for her. She was like a serial writer at whose shoulder a nagging editor stands insisting. She was like Dostoevsky, sick and confused, but unable to escape the necessity for filling the pages as fast as the ink could run, unable to recall any written page since it was printed almost before the next was written, and the title of her serial was also Crime and Punishment. Her crime was not ruthless murder, but reckless creation. She had not driven an old woman out of the world. She was reluctantly dragging a child into it, Yet society was as eager to find her out and disgrace her as the slayer. For a night and a day she paced the jail of her room and beat her brains against the iron bars of her problem. She could not break through. She could not worm her way through. She had no imagination, no inventiveness. She was just an ordinary girl who wanted to keep from hurting anybody and was finding it mighty difficult. She was tempted to send Dr. Bretherick a confession of failure and ask him to revise his continuity, but she was afraid to face the telegraph office with such a message and afraid to have it received at home. She dared not wait a week for a letter to come and go, and besides her author was at such a distance that he could not understand the emergency. It is well for authors to keep in close touch with their plays and pictures in the making. She would probably have given up trying if a bit of luck had not befallen her. It was her habit of mind to credit it to a relenting providence. When things went wrong, she blamed herself. When they took a turn for the better, she blessed heaven. She saw divine purpose in the very bungling of circumstance that kept her frantic with uncertainties. On the fourth morning of her suspense, Mrs. Galbraith rode over in haste and distress to explain that her husband and she had to leave Tucson for a few days to attend his father's funeral. 
she promised to hasten back and beg Mem Steddon's forgiveness for deserting her. Mem was not quite sure that heaven had slain the elder Mr. Galbraith just on purpose to help her out of her difficulty, but she had a hard time to keep Mrs. Galbraith from realizing how glad she was to be rid of her and her husband. And as soon as Mrs. Galbraith had gone, she assailed her problem with a new ardor. It was plainly a time for quick and decisive action. She threw caution aside and forbore to regard the perils of inconsistency. She wrote her father and mother a hasty letter to which the lilt of hope unconsciously contributed an atmosphere of bridal bliss. My darling mamma and papa, well, you have lost your daughter, not by fell disease, but by fell in love. You may say it is good riddance of bad rubbish, but it hurt me to lose the noble name of Steddon, even for the beautiful title of Woodville, for that's what I've been and gone and done. Yes, I'm married now. I meant to break it to you gentler, but it popped out, so I'll leave it. You see, Mr. Woodville, John, was so attentive and kind and considerate and respectful, almost reverent, you might say, and he's so big and handsome and fine and noble, and I was so small and lonely and so far away for so long that, oh, I just couldn't resist. He stayed in Tucson. By the way, it's pronounced Tucson, not Tucson, for several days longer than he planned because he said he couldn't tear himself away from me. But finally, he had to leave for Yuma, and he said he couldn't live without poor little me. I felt I couldn't live without him. And why should I deny myself a protector and the highest glory of womanhood? So he begged me to marry him and go to Yuma. I had about decided that Tucson was not the right place for me anyway. My cough is much better, but not enough better to quit suit. So I consented to marry John. Dr. Galbraith was awfully nice to me, but he was called away by the unfortunate death of his father, so he couldn't marry us, so we were married by Reverend Mr. Smidgens. Here she wrote a name illegibly. I haven't time to write you more, for John is waiting, and our train want. I'll write a longer letter when I have the leisure. I do hope you will be happy as I am about it. You haven't lost a daughter, but gained a son. We leave at once for Yuma, so address all your letters to me as Mrs. John Woodville, General Delivery, Yuma. Doesn't it sound grand, though? I don't know how long we shall be there, as John is looking over some properties and doesn't know just where to settle yet. I wish I could write you that he is terribly rich, but while he hopes to be some day, he is very poor just now. But he is such a noble man, and noble hearts are better than coronets, as the poet saith, and I shall try to be a help to him, and some day we will pay back the money I have taken away from you poor darlings. Well, I must close for the present. Don't stop loving me just because I have a husband, but send us your blessings, your loving, loving daughter, Mem. She was exhausted by the soul strain, and she had to rest mind and body before she could undertake the task of writing the Galbraiths, a similar letter, with the necessary changes. It was only herself that she had to conquer, since she did not have to look the recipients in the eye. There was a kind of mischievous hilarity in the tone of her letter to the two kind clergyman and his over-solicitous wife. Dear Dr. and Mrs. Galbraith, what you will think of me I can well imagine, 
Ingratitude is the least thing you will think of, but I don't mean to be ungrateful. You see, it is this way. On the train, as I wrote Mama and Papa, I met an old friend. He was terribly nice to me, and I can understand why, but he fell in love with me. I can tell why I should fall in love with him, though. Anyway, we did, so we expected to get married some day. I wanted you to meet him, but he was awfully busy, and then you had to leave, and then John had to go away, and he said he couldn't live without me, and I didn't want him to die. So, as he had to leave at once, and he asked me to marry him right away, I did so, and now I am Mrs. John Woodville, if you please. John has some properties to look over, so we don't know just yet just where we will settle down, so you will have to address me at General Delivery, Yuma, Mrs. John Woodville. I can never, never thank you enough. John says to thank you for him, and hoping to see you soon again. Yours most gratefully, Remember Steddon Woodville. Mem laughed as she wrote and sealed this letter, and was most grateful to the Galbraiths for their absence. But her landlady had to be dealt with face to face, or she could not get her trunk away. The landlady had expected to keep her guest for a long while, and, as usual, worked both ends of the game. When she had rented the room to Mem, she had explained that her prices were high because of the heavy demand. When Mem wanted to unrent the room, the landlady complained that she would lose the use of it, as the demand had died. Mam had to pay for the balance of the month, and this took important dollars from her scant funds, but it gave her the strength to be curt when the landlady gasped at her instructions that any letters coming to Miss Remember Steddon should be readdressed to Mrs. John Woodville, General Delivery, Yuma, Arizona. The landlady's natural cackling over the unearthing of a romance was rigidly suppressed by Mem with as much calm as if she had been getting married every few days. She was not so stolid when she set out upon her next errand. She had to buy her wardrobe for the third act, her widow's weeds. She was going to save a lot of money by purchasing no bridal gear at all, no veil, no orange blossoms, no trousseau, for her honeymoon was to be as imaginary as her wedding, but her mourning must be visible. As she moved slowly down the Tucson street to a dry goods store to buy a crepe dress and hat and veil, she was dogged by a feeling of dreadful foreboding. To pretend to get married was a pleasant little comedy, but to put on false mourning was to carry the lie into the realm of grisly crime. A superstitious dread assailed her that if she put on the inky suit of woe, she would soon have a real reason for it. Someone dear to her would die, and she would somehow be to blame for it. She glanced over her shoulder timorously and felt a something at heel. She felt as one might who, lost in the wilderness and struggling with weakening steps to reach safety, sees a famished wolf following at a little distance, sees overhead an impatient buzzard making slow circles across his path. But she must go on and cheat the wolf and the buzzard if she could. She had such distaste for the business that she was not quite ready for the natural questions of the saleswoman who met her demand for a morning costume. Was it first or second morning? Half morning? Did she wish very deep morning? And what size? Was it for herself or a relative? For herself? Oh, that was too bad. And was it a father she had lost? Not a husband. Oh, how sad. Was it very sudden? An accident or an illness? 
Mem had not yet decided which it was to be, and her guilty confusion might well have been taken for a confession of murder. That was what she felt it must be. The saleswoman's curiosity was quickened to torment by the evasiveness of Mem's mumbled answers, and when Mem declined to have the things sent to her address and asked to have them put in a box for her to carry, the saleswoman could not conceal her agitation. Mem caught her glance as she looked for a wedding ring on Mem's bare hand. This frightened Mem and increased her despair of success, but she had to hold herself in control long enough to march out as a dazed relict of blighted hope. It was hard to manage this and carry a large bundle, too, but she reached the sidewalk somehow. The saleswoman's suspicion had given her a hint. She stopped at a jewelry store and bought herself a plain gold band. She wore it out of the store, explaining that she had lost her first ring. When she returned to her boarding house, the landlady, whose inquisitiveness was still simmering to a boil, let her in. As Mem locked glances with her defiantly, she saw the landlady's eyes go to her hand and widen with recognition of the wedding ring. Mem let the box of mourning fall to the floor. If it had broken open, the landlady gasped. "'You ain't married already?' "'Yes.' "'Lord o' mercy, that's the quickest work I ever did see. "'Where's your husband?' "'Minding his business, his own business.' "'She regretted the unwarranted insolence instantly, "'but it served to put the landlady on the defensive "'and taught Mem the value of bluff "'and the military rule. "'When your position is weak, leave it and attack.' "'The landlady fried in her own fat "'trying to figure out what sort of creature Mem was. "'But the next morning she was gone.' A few days later, a letter came for Miss Steddon. Before readdressing it, the landlady could not resist steaming it open. It proved to be a message of love from the girl's father. Among many expressions of uneasiness for the poor child was a pleasant word for Mr. Woodville, also a pious hope that the splendid gentleman would be a real protection and comfort to the little wanderer. Thus one duped dupes another, and the fooled father fooled the landlady by confirming the lie Mem had told her. With all doubts as to the girl's honesty allayed, the mistress of the boarding-house crossed out Miss Steddon, wrote Mrs. John Woodville, General Delivery, Yuma, and glued the flap down again. End of chapter 15. Recording by Deanna Beauvais.